This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The facts that will be presented are true. Scientists representing the world's foremost research centers took part in the examination of the evidence. This is Chris, and tonight on this episode of Paranormal Guys, we're going to finish up the interview we had with Gene St. Jean, the Picasso of the paranormal. And on this episode, he talks a lot more about the Patterson-Gimlet footage and then gets into some of the uh, Native American aspects of Sasquatch. So, enjoy. Um, so, Gene, yeah. I guess, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about the Native American side of it. But before we get into that, since, you know, I mentioned earlier at the start of the show, this is the anniversary of the Patterson-Gimlin footage. How do you just feel about that footage in general? I know when I was at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference and talking to, to Bobcat Goldthwait, he was like, hey, you know, it's he, he feels it's pretty much, you know, legit. So how do you just in general feel about the footage? Well, I mean, I think... I think like a lot of people who got bit by the Bigfoot bug, that was my first introduction to it. I think I think I was in I was in fifth or sixth grade when I saw the you know that one famous frame, that one still that everyone uses from the Patterson film, and it was on the cover of we had these uh, kind of miniature reading magazines when I was a kid in our kind of reading cubby area in the classroom. And I guess it was a rainy day or something. I was digging through the books back there, pulled out a few of these magazines, and one of them had um, like a, John, a feature on John Chambers doing the Planet of the Apes makeup, which I was obsessed with Planet of the Apes. And uh, they had another one where one of the famous photos of underwater photos of Nessie was on the cover. And, you know, one of the ones that we found out later that the fins that you see in it, the dorsal fins, were actually painted on later by someone. <laughs> And, and then the third one I found was had that frame from that still from the Patterson Gimlin film. So, you know, I read it and it just, I had never heard of it before and it just blew me away. And of course fed right into all the things I was interested in were monsters and sci-fi and all that. So I started following it religiously, like all the books that would cover things like that and magazines like, uh, Argosy and things like that, and uh, this was so. This was during the seventies. I'm 52 now, so this would have been you know early 70s. 
So um, I always had a special place in my heart for that. And of course, like most people who look at it objectively, you look at it and it doesn't, you know, doesn't look like a creature. It looks like a suit, you know? And the, but the only, as I really, as I got more into what I do now, I spend a lot of time studying anatomy, human anatomy, animal anatomy, surface anatomy, everything to do with functionality and um, physical appearance of bodies and creatures. That's how I make a living. So I spend all day, every day studying that stuff. And one of the things as I got more into what I do now that always bothered me about that thing, because I had written it off as a hoax. <clears throat> the thing that always bothered me years later is that is people talk about the muscle movement in the back, you know, and I'm well versed in, you know, back muscles and all of that stuff. And I think you can clearly pick out, you know, trapezius muscles, the rhomboid structure in the middle, the movement of the lats on the side and the scapular muscles. And it's moving around not in a way necessarily that a bodysuit would if you had a muscle suit underneath. And even, um, and, you know, and of course, there's always the argument that they didn't have those type of foam bodysuits because the foam that would use now to do a bodysuit wasn't available then. And people like to talk about um, how uh, Patterson was a clever guy. He was a, a pretty decent artist and that he would have built all this stuff himself. But, you know, well, that's one, one thing that people say is they built it themselves. But back then you couldn't use all these materials just like in your garage. You know, it's not like now. I mean, now you can buy all sorts of crazy ass materials and you can have a little lab in your house and do all sorts of professional level work if you have the aptitude for it, right in your place. But back then, this stuff was very specialized and not generally available and very expensive. And then, of course, so there's that, there's that perspective on it that he had done it himself. Then the other perspective is that uh, was it John Chambers, the Planet H guy they were saying had done it also had been involved. From that perspective, I look at it as a businessman. It's like if someone came to me and asked me to build them a full body suit of anything and they didn't have any money, there's no way I'd do it. Because it's just practically it's like I could be doing a paying job rather than doing a full job for somebody who doesn't have the money, even if they were a friend. So I gotta look at from his perspective, and again, total speculation. But from his perspective, why would he do something that would probably be, you know, in those days probably would be a $10,000 job. Nowadays, it would be $100,000 and when he could be working on a set or something. So that doesn't make sense to me. And uh, so, so I'm building up to where my opinion comes from when I get to it. All so right. then, then a few years ago, um, Bill Munn starts started doing his personal research on aspects of the film, like the uh, the way the breasts bounce in the film when she makes it step down, different things. He built different versions of suit aspects to kind of try to reproduce things happening in the film. 
And he's a specialist. He doesn't have an axe to grind in either direction, I don't think, as far as whether it's real or not real. It, you know, it's not going to matter to him. But he's done all this interesting kind of experimentation. And everything he said about, like, the head size, how you, you know, depending on how you fit a human body into a costume, the head size would be too small. He explains it better than me. If you, anyone is interested, look up Bill Munns and his Bigfoot research. You'll find it kind of he encapsulates it in different uh, speeches he did at different conventions. It's really interesting. It helps to uh, establish that maybe a suit wasn't the way it was done, you know? And so when I look at what he had to say about it, Meldrum's opinion on the thing as far as like, you know, you have associated footprints with the film. And then there's my own kind of observations of the, you know, the appearance of moving musculature in the back. And, uh, and then, of course, layer on top of that, the fact that I really want to believe in it. And I've spoken to Bob Dimlin in person, and I get a good vibe off of that dude. So I think that there's, there's a pretty good chance that maybe that is legit. You know, I mean, can't say 100%. You can never be sure of what anyone's motivations are for saying what they say. But if I take all the things together... I think there's a good possibility that maybe it's a real creature, you know? Now, uh, um, Gene, uh, going into all the, uh, I have a question for you here about it. You know, with uh, every the, the main uh, proof, if you want to call it that, when people talk about the Patterson-Gimlin footage, lately has been, like, the muscle movement and everything like that. Now, uh-huh. you know, with the suit and everything, talking about how it would be hard to get that wearing a suit, now, what if they just super glued fur to a person? Yeah. <laughs> Chad's, well, be, Chad's thing, being really quiet. <laughs> well, well, for one thing, I don't think, if you talk specifically about super glue, that didn't exist. Oh, well, there but, you, okay, um, there you go. <laughs> and one of the other, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot holes in your... Your please, though, please do, Gene. Yeah, you're you're bringing up good points. Um, so super glue didn't exist. One of the other things that Bill Munns brings up is that um, in terms of the fur, like they have fur now that's like it's kind of I'm not a special effects guy, but the way he described it, it's kind of sewn into a uh, a spandex type material that stretches in four directions. So if you stretched it real tight, like across your bicep, mm-hmm. and then you flexed your arm, it would stretch in a rounded fashion to mimic the shape of your bicep. Right. But in those days, they didn't, they didn't have that type of stretch fabric. So if you moved, like as that guy walked, <clears throat> instead of seeing the flexation of the muscles, what you would see would be a fold, like as he swung his arm forward, you'd see a fold under the arm where you'd have a bridging between like where the tricep or the elbow was all the way back to the armpit. Like if you're wearing like a large jacket or something. Yeah. And like I said before, they didn't have the type of foam muscle suits that are, again, they're kind of sewed into a fabric or built onto a, a foam latex 
skin so that each muscle is individualized so that you get a feel for a body moving. You know, even though suits, they don't move like a body really, but at least if the muscles are sculpted separately, you can kind of mimic it a little bit. They didn't have any of that. And to do that for something like this, with a guy with no budget would have cost thousands of dollars. So to me, you know, and then to take it another step further, you get the guy, um, who is the, the guy, the suit maker guy that claimed that he built the suit and had Bob Hieronymus. He has right. Wasn't he, uh, I think I heard, uh, was it Darkness Radio, I think, with Dave Schrader about, oh, this had to have been well over a year ago. He was on that show. And I listened to that whole, I guess, almost three-hour show, and at the end of it, it, it kind of turned into a, yeah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because <laughs> there were just so many holes in his story that he contradicted himself. He would say one thing, and then, like, 15 minutes later, he would completely go against what he said. And But, yeah, he, he claimed that he had, I think he had the, the paperwork or the invoice where they ordered it and everything like that. Yeah. Wasn't that with Morris yeah. Morris yeah. Costume they talked about that? Yes. Yeah, yeah I think it was Morris Philip Costume. Morris, that's it. Yeah. That's it, dude. That's it. Yeah, and there was a million holes in what he had to say. Oh, yeah. For one thing, <laughs> and... I'm trying to remember off of the different stuff I've read, but for one thing, him and Hieronymus, who supposedly wore the suit, described the construction of the suit completely different. Right. It was completely different suit depending on, so they didn't even get their story straight when they did the interviews for that book. Uh, it was like 10 years ago, the guy who wrote the expose on Bluff Creek and had half the information wrong. Um, but so there was that aspect of it. He described a suit that was basically one of his gorilla suits that had been modified, like the head had been modified by Patterson, I suppose. But um, the suit that he showed, the type of suit that supposedly was modified, didn't match up to what is in the film. And then on top of that, um, I guess uh, Hieronymus, Morris and Hieronymus couldn't get straight where the actual site was either. They were completely wrong about where the site was, where it was filmed. And there was a number of other things that, you know, I mean, it's a tough story to kind of analyze 50 years later when most of the people involved are gone. Mm -hmm. You know, you have Bob you can talk to. But um, there's not much else, you know, to go by. You, all you really have is Bob's words. So it's a matter of, do I believe him or do I not believe him? And then you go back to the film and, you know, there's a, there's a, the, that nice stabilization that MK Davis did. <laughs> and if you can see some uh, clearer versions of the film and stuff like that, it, it's hard to say. I mean, there's stuff in it that are like, one of the things that always bugs me in terms of its authenticity, was you see that straight line across the hip that looks like if you put on a pair of pants and throw a shirt down over it, there's a break line where you'd have the top half of the suit. The problem with it is, is that no one builds suits that way. You know, mm -hmm. you wouldn't do a suit where you'd put on a pair of pants like hip waders 
jacket over the top because it would look like crap. If anything, at the very least, what you would do is you'd stagger that edge. You'd cut it so that it was in a shaggy pattern rather than a straight line, not just like a shirt, you know, so that at least it would it would obscure kind of a mechanical straight line. And um, going back to Jeff Malcolm again, he mentioned that that could be created by the way the creature's swinging its arms, and that's actually the thumb dragging across the side, creating a rough in the fur, mm-hmm. bringing it forward and creating that straight line. So there's, you know, I mean, really, you don't have to listen to this interview. Just go watch a few of Jeff's videos, <laughs> and you'll have everything you need to know. Yeah. Because that's, that's what I do for 99% of my opinion on the subject. But um, So, I mean, you take all of those positive and negative aspects to the story and the video and you throw that all in a pot and you just got to decide at the end of the day you still just got to decide whether you buy it or not and like i said i mean a big part of it for me is i really want to believe it but then i gotta keep going back to the the elements that always struck me and the, the one that always struck me and sticks with me is that the muscle movement. I mean, Bob's story and Bill Munn's research really supported how I feel about the film. But every time I look at that, despite some of the things that bug me about it, there's just like that back musculature. It's moving in the film as near as I can tell. It's not moving like a fur shirt. Even if even if they had a fake back, muscly back sculpted under there. Or if you had like somebody built like the Hulk wearing a fur shirt, the muscles are moving as if the fur skin is actually attached to them, not like it's sliding over them like you see uh, a football player wearing a body glove shirt, you know, (laughs) that basically, those shirts basically look like superhero costumes. You see all the fine wrinkles in between the muscles and stuff, but the material moves over the muscle, obviously. The muscle doesn't, you know, move as if that's the skin, but so I mean definitely it's not Lou Ferrigno in a fursuit. <laughs> yeah, most likely not. Maybe his grandfather. <laughs> but but I mean when I look at it now, it's like I don't think it whether it's true or not true, it doesn't advance the cause of you know, whether Bigfoot is real or not for science but you know i think it could be it could be a real creature and of course taken out of context you got to look at it look at it in terms of the broader concept of bigfoot in general like okay 50 years and this is the classic 50 years and no more pictures of bigfoot since then because you can't like you can't look at the Ivan Mark stuff where the thing's got the big werewolf ears strolling down by the river because everyone knows that that guy was full of crap. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing that comes close is the, uh, and I'm going to totally forget this freaking guy's name now. Uh, the guy, uh, he took the video where he's kind of panting and falling on the ground. He passed away like uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I know who you're talking. I was just actually looking at a clip of his footage because he was talking yeah. about there was he because he spotted like two of them in one in one of his videos. There were two that walked 
around. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Yeah, his, uh, I, gosh, his son was just, his son's actually been selling right. some copies of his cast and stuff, and I'm trying to think of his name right now. Yeah, just that, the name of that one is slip on my mind, but you guys know what I'm talking about. But um, you see, like, snippets of that creature strolling through in between the trees, and despite the fact that it feels like the video is a little bit uh, over-dramatized, you know? But the creature, what you could see that's really interesting. You know, it seems to have the same sort of physical presence as the patty creature. But, you know, but there again, and I mean, that guy has, you know, he's done a ton of research. He's found cats and all sorts of things. I mean, but again, you know, <clears throat> there's just enough in that video to interest you, but not enough to definitively nail it down you know right. which is which is what we're dealing with with the subject but i mean you know you go back to any sort of like hard to find animal you know like the things people like to bring up are like the panda bear and mountain gorillas things like that that took a long time to prove they're actually real and before that they were just native folklore that no one believed Right, and then until <laughs> until people found them, you know, and then of course once once people found the mountain grill and they started dragging them out of there by you know by the dozens, you know, to put them in, you know, like I don't know what the museums are that you guys would have that be similar, but uh, Museum of Natural History in New York, they have one of those earliest kind of displays of mountain gorillas that are stuffed. It's pretty garish, <laughs> but it's like a whole family of mountain gorillas stuffed in this like environmental display and that's what they used to do they're like oh we just discovered this animal it's like we're going to call it a chimpanzee bring us back 50 <laughs> that's that type of thing right and, and you know that's so i've said this before and that's kind of my argument is say around here we we technically have bobcats in the forest but mm -hmm. how many times do you have to go out in the forest and walk around even take trail cams, set out all night, do whatever you want to do, night vision, infrared. How many times are you going to have to go out before you actually see a bobcat? I mean, it's not like a squirrel that they're just everywhere. You know, it's it's a Bigfoot, and it's probably a little bit more intelligent, so it's going to know how to hide better. You're not going to see them every time you go out in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you have... An animal that's going to be very hard to find. And there is, you know, granted, it's it's a lot different talking about <clears throat> deepest Africa or South America where they discover a new type of, you know, primate or a new type of bat. They're finding stuff all the time, but oh, yeah. they're not finding it here. That's the, and then you have the, you have the, um, the fact that, as far as like primate, other than humans, primate prehistory in this country is fairly young. You know, I just reposted something the other night I saw where they had supposedly found a potential uh, early human site where they found mammoth bones that had been, <clears throat> it looked like they were trying to, uh, they were being chiseled down for like marrow and the bones and things like that. And they had dated them to like something crazy like, 130,000 years, which is basically about 100,000 years earlier than 
allegedly the first uh, humans were in this country, right. or whatever passed for humans at the time. And of course, you know, there's a big, <clears throat> they're contesting the discovery and the dating of the bones and whatnot. And I'm sure it'll, it'll jerk around for years because they discovered it a few years ago as it is. And only now we're really starting to hear a lot about it. But, um, you know, there's not a, there's not a deep history of non-human primates in this country. I don't think they've ever found any monkey or ape bones or anything. And of course you have the, you have, um, the acidity of the soil in the Pacific Northwest that tends to make short work of any kind of remains in addition to animal scavenging bones and things like that. And, uh, but in terms of fossils, you don't have much. So it'd be different if, it, if there was some sort of a species of ape that we had in this country that we had fossils of, you know, or you find a pre-human site and you find some sort of ape bones that they had eaten or something, you know, but, uh, you know, so you, you have to go to that next hypothesis, which is creatures like this, some sort of ancestor of possibly Gigantopithecus or something similar, Gigantopithecus maybe coming across the land bridge into North America with the Native Americans, you know, and, you know, like if you, I've been as since the material on this type of stuff on um, Bigfoot is pretty thin, and unless you want to read a lot of books about fake-sounding habituation and portals and all sorts of nonsense, you got to get into studying apes and monkeys and human evolution. And at any given time during prehistory, you know, like hundreds of thousands of years, million years, whatever there were multiple species of pre-humans, you know, variations of Australopithecines, two or three types of Australopithecines living at the same time. And Neanderthals coexisted at the same time as a few different groups of, you know, early humans or, you know, human ape, whatever you want to call it. You know, so this is really the first time in history where there's allegedly only one type of hominid, which is us. So this is unusual, really, in the broad spectrum of uh, hominid history. I mean, and again, got to refer back to uh, to Jeff Meldrum, because I've all, all this stuff I picked up from some of his videos. You just look him up on YouTube, and he does a few great presentations on all this stuff and he ties it in beautifully into just the stuff we're interested in talking about here too. Mm -hmm. But, um, so in terms of what, what's come before, it would only make sense that there would have to be other types of hominids out there that we just haven't found yet. But the problem is, is that, you know, there's no substantial proof of it. There's tons of circumstantial evidence. You know, I don't think there's ever been any hair samples that were definitively nailed down as uh, some sort of non-human primate that was undescribed. I mean, but it depends on who you talk to and what they want to believe. I mean, like, I'll admit, like, like just about everyone else who talks about it, I don't know anything about DNA, you know, other than the little snippets that I hear online reading books. 
I've listened to a couple of things with Brian Sykes and I read one of his books. And one of the things he says that kind of sheds a light on it is that, you know, when you're dealing with DNA, it's not like you come up with something that's like, well, you know, it's a non-human primate or it's an undescribed species and that equals Bigfoot. He said, if it's, if it's, um, if it's unknown, it's unknown. If you can't match it up within their DNA database, then you don't know what it is. You can't just say, okay, well, we can't get a read on it, so it's, it's got to be, you know, some sort of, got to be some sort of extant human or ape man or Sasquatch, you know. So, again, it boils down to what you want to believe and what you're willing to do as far as, you know, look at the evidence that you kind of have in front of you in an objective fashion so that you just don't look like a crackpot, you know, in, yeah. in forensic science, in police work, in any kind of scientific endeavor, you have to look at the evidence and you have to determine whether it supports what your hypothesis is. And you can't go into it saying, okay, I want to find Sasquatch. Does this equal Sasquatch? You got to look to see what it is, what it isn't and then see whether it lays. And I think the problem that we see most of the time is people going out and expecting Sasquatch. So everything fits the bill, you know? Oh, and, and Gene, uh, before I brought up the yeah. uh, the Patterson-Gimlin footage and I was talking about the, uh, you know, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the Native American aspect of it. Um, you know, you're talking about all the scientific evidence and proof the Native American history, the Native American stories of Sasquatch and interactions that we touched on a little bit earlier, how has that helped reinforce your belief in Sasquatch and Bigfoot uh, in doing research on that? Well, I think that, you know, like like I mentioned at the beginning, the modern modern tales I have a problem with because there's too many too many stories online and too much involvement in pop culture to not think that there's a lot of people just taking advantage of it, especially with, you know, with the explosion of cryptid shows on TV, especially finding Bigfoot. Cause you gotta, you gotta think that half the people going to this town meeting desperately want to be on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, there's probably a few that have legit encounters or, Maybe they did see something, but it was something else. But, you know, I don't want to discard it all. But people are people, and people in general are full of crap, and they like to lie. So you have to take it with a grain of salt that there's going to be a lot of people exploiting an opportunity. And the thing that I like about the Native American stories, much like the really early reports where... in really early stuff from the 1800s, you have people making reports that talk about, um, they call them what it is, what is it? Because they literally didn't know what to describe them as. Or they would call them like apes or something like that, or gorillas, because they didn't, there was no correlation to a concept like Bigfoot. It didn't exist yet, you know, in the popular terminology. And you didn't have the interconnectedness of um, 
newspapers and things like that in the way that we have in the way that we have the internet now where you can have a bit of information in a heartbeat, you know. And so what I like about the Native American stuff is they have all these disparate tales from around the United States. You know, there's tribes in South America too that have tales, but to stick with the United States stuff. And they're pretty widely varied in terms of their interaction, but there's a fair there's a fair amount of consistency as far as the physical description. And in general, you get the impression that, like I mentioned earlier, that they had a respect for these creatures. They looked at them as another tribe, but um, they generally steered clear of them. And sometimes their interactions were good or just, you know, at least kind of even. And sometimes they feared them. You know, you'll find in in uh, Native American tribes in the United States and also some of the South American ones, there are stories about um, how Native tribes would go to war. There was one, I don't remember the tribe, but they had gone to war with a group of Bigfoot because they were stealing children and with they come down at night to take them, and uh, they got the tribe got fed up with it. So they actually cornered them in a cave that they supposedly lived in, and they set the set the cave yeah the uh, opened the cave on fire and basically smothered all of them in the cave. And what's interesting about that story is I've read the same story from a few different countries. And how they, one of them was a South American story that dealt with uh, kind of the smaller, smaller version of Bigfoot. I can't remember what the things were called, but um, maybe there were, it might have been in like Sumatra or something. I think I might have read the story in uh, a book that had to deal with the Orang Pendek and kind of more diminutive type relic hominid, sort of an ape type species. But it was basically the same story. The creatures lived in a cave. They were a pain in the ass. And the tribe got fed up. And they smoked them out and basically killed them all. You know, and uh, so some of the stories kind of, you know, some of them seem like stories that are so common and so similar that it's something that maybe a tall tale. <clears throat> but um, I just... I just like the fact that um, the way the tales read, they come off as more of them describing another tribe or just another animal right. that is already in there. You know, like they're in the, uh, in Kathy Strange's book, and if you listen to some interviews with her, she had actually, she talked about these uh, pictographs in California on one of the reservation areas where they, <clears throat> they draw out like the whole bestiary of animals that they're familiar with. And this, this cave painting is like, whatever, like, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of years old. I'm not sure. I can't remember the time frame, but it's freaking old. Right. <laughs> and, and in this bestiary, they have all the animals you recognize. And in the center, they have this big freaking thing. That's like a big hulking thing with red eyes huh. and the, if you uh, if you've probably seen like representations of it, actually I used, I kind of did a vamp on it for the back of our package. 
you know, I kind of redrew it so it wouldn't be just a blatant lift from <laughs> traditional material, but but it's like a it's like a line drawing in kind of red with kind of like line fingers and then the eyes are red with lines coming down from the eyes, red lines, almost like the eyes are glowing or shooting beams or something. And and supposedly the tribal elders that's what they described it as, is that the representation of Sasquatch. And all the other animals in the pictograph are animals that exist. So why would they draw all the animals in their local knowledge and then just pick one in there that's just like a boogeyman, a fantasy creature? <laughs> draw the ones yeah, that everybody would... knows about and then go, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to have some fun. We're going right. to just make this one up and throw it in. <laughs> Right, because you would figure if it was just kind of a wide range of real and imaginary animals, there would be other things in there. You know, you might see something that are like centaurs or whatever, you know. Right. You see a half a dozen fake creatures, and then you see foxes and eagles and crap like that. Right. But this is the only one that, you know, so I mean, it's, it's debatable, of course. But those aspects, and then like kind of the nuts and bolts, stories that, or at least appear to me to be nuts and bolts stories. Like, one of the stories I had read was that there was a one of the tribes they would uh, they would have to lay out fish as an offering to the Sasquatch when they filled their net. Because if they didn't leave fish out for them, then the creatures would get bent out of shape and they'd just wreck all the nets. They'd just tear up all the nets but as long as they left them an offering, they would come and they'd take their fish, you know, like paying off protection in the city or something like that. You know, you don't give the guy his hundred bucks a week, he sends a guy who breaks your own. You know what I mean? <laughs> that type of thing. And it, you know, it's, and it speaks to a creature that, you know, maybe isn't like a human on par with like the Indian tribe, but something that's smart enough, like, a chimp or a gorilla, that would be like, you know, I don't have to go in the water. I don't have to wreck the net. They left me some fish. You know, they take take off. Bada bing. So they, yeah, in a way they become, yeah, in a way it's smart because the tribes basically <laughs> habituate the creatures to get used to coming and taking their food and splitting. And they realize that as long as they come and they take what's offered to them, then they have a steady supply of food rather than, you know, kind of killing the golden goose. And uh, so that part of it, I always thought was interesting. And then the thing about, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion also about um, what the prospective diet is of the creatures. Are they actually, you know, opportunistic like a black bear or something like that, where they'll basically eat anything they find? Or are they carnivorous? Are they hunters? You know, I mean, you hear a lot of the stories I prefer, they kind of tend towards these being kind of more like agrarian creatures. That's probably not the right word, but, you know, just more classic creatures. They eat more of a diet similar to a gorilla, you know, and one of the arguments you always hear from people of a skeptical bent is like, you need a gigantic amount of uh, food mass, biomass, <clears throat> to keep something like that alive. And yet, gorillas are fairly large creatures. They're probably like five feet tall, have a lot of girth to them. The reason they have that big belly is because they have 
kind of a slow digestive system. So they, they have to eat a lot of biomass and it cooks kind of slowly in that stuff. They eat like uh, bamboo and all sorts of different plants, but they spend their whole freaking day eating, you know, to keep that, that frame going. So it, in essence, something like a Sasquatch, if they were going to make their living as, you know, more or less a vegetarian, they'd have to be eating all the time. And generally, animals in the forest, that's what they focus on. You know, they focus on eating, sleeping, procreation, this basic survival. So <clears throat> when you look at the different stories, you get a sense of different <clears throat> types of animals around the country, depending on where the tribes are located. Obviously, the ones that are stealing children, you know, they're more, they either have a broader diet like a bear or they're carnivorous. And they wouldn't necessarily need a greater water source because new type. Because uh, <clears throat> a lot of carnivores like uh, felines and stuff tend to get a lot of their water out of their meat intake. Mm -hmm. So you look at those and it's, you know, People talk about them as cannibalistic, but they're, you know, they're not human. They're not cannibals. Yeah. But they could be carnivores or omnivores. So, I mean, that, those type of stories, they support, they support at least my idea of what an animal, how an animal would have to make its living. It's either eating meat or it's, you know, eating berries, things like that, you know. Even today, in some of the reservations, I mean, if you've ever read the two books that, uh, uh, I'm crap with names today, the, the categories of books about the um, missing 411 stuff, he wrote two books on um, the Hoopa Reservation encounters. Um, I'll go look at my bookcase. But um, they have, they saw stories today of interactions with the creatures on the reservations and I mean, it's, again, it's kind of a stretch, but um, it sort of seems like uh, David Pauly, that's the guy. Yeah. Um, it, again, all this stuff is wild speculation, but it almost seems like these creatures have kind of evolved over the centuries next to the Native American people, and they're still kind of a comfortable um acquaintance between the two of them you know kind of live and let live you know so that may be why there's still you know a lot of interaction on reservations you know because it's i don't think from you know from what i'm read and kind of talk to people about the spiritual aspect of a lot of the native american beliefs are kind of dying out because the younger generations are aren't as into it so I would expect that there wouldn't be as much of kind of the spiritual, spiritually wild kind of stuff you would get out of maybe the older generation who maybe their belief system kind of treads in between a spiritual mentality and kind of what's going on in the physical reality, you know? Yeah. But, so, and it, and so those are kind of some of the things that attract me to those stories, you know, as far as the stories are old, they're coming from a native perspective, which 
to me is similar to it's similar to what um, early explorers were hearing from tribes in Africa about gorillas and different animals. They were just wild tales until they saw them, and then you know, then all of a sudden it's a real thing. And the thing that's interesting in this country and in modern times is um, it's it's funny because it's it's analogous to when you're watching horror movies and the first thing that you see in a horror movie that the monster has on its side, like vampires or werewolves, is that nobody who's in the movie believes in vampires and werewolves. So the whole first three quarters of the movie is the the hero of the movie has to do it by himself because no one else believes. Very frightening. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean... You look at the same thing today. The the biggest benefit that these animals have is that hardly anybody believes in them. And the people that do believe in them are nutjobs to everyone else's mind. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's the biggest hurdle to get over. But I think and that's that's one of the problems with the subject itself is that the public at large only really sees the clip of the Patty film, they see Finding Bigfoot and people running around in the dark with the infrared on and never finding anything. Beating trees and with then, yeah. Yeah, and then they, yeah, and then they see people um, who occasionally are on the news with the newscasters laughing at them, talking about seeing creature or whatever, and that's that's what people think Bigfoot is. They think it's nonsense. And on top of that, there's this perception somehow there's this perception that roger patterson confessed to the whole thing as being a hoax on his deathbed and they mix up that lie with the uh fake footprint cast that was brought out after um the guy couldn't remember his name earlier after he passed away and uh they just say oh well you know they they owned up to the whole thing was all fake. And it was like, that was, no one ever owned up to anything like that, you know? So it's mm-hmm. all, that's what the public sees. So that is the battle that anyone that's in this has to fight. And what it really comes down to is find, you know, find the evidence because you can tell as many stories as you want, but they're going to be stories <clears throat> until there's a scientific discovery. And as much as, you know, like, I'm not a hunter, you know, I believe that if you're going to hunt, you better eat everything that you kill, because you shouldn't just be out there shooting animals so you can have a friggin' deer rack on your hillbilly wall in your house, you know, but the thing is, is that uh, people want to argue against killing this thing, it's like, the habitat for these creatures has got to be disappearing like wildfire. And it's only a matter of time before they're going to be extinct. And it's more likely than not that these things will go extinct before they're ever proven to exist. Because I don't, personally, I don't believe that they're all over the United States. I don't believe that 90% of what people are saying is even true. I think they're very rare and the percentage of probably the percentage of uh, stories we're actually hearing 
is very small ones that are actually even true. And there's probably a lot of stories that we don't hear because people don't want to talk about it that could help to establish it. But, mm-hmm. you know, until somebody comes in with a carcass and they could drop that down in front of a scientific team, you know, to study it, no one's going to really protect the habitat of these creatures. You know, because I don't, I don't believe in all the conspiracy crap. No one has anything to gain. I, I was just going off on somebody the other day on a post about uh, the Smithsonian hiding giant bones. It's yeah. like if the, if the Smithsonian or any other scientific institution had giant bones, it would be the biggest freaking discovery in the history of the world. And they would make so much money on having a, you know, like you would onto the, any museum that has dinosaur bones. You have a zillion little kids and their parents coming in. It's their biggest money maker. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if you walked into the the main uh, atrium of a museum and there was a twenty foot giant there? You would need sacks to move that money. You'd need friggin' trucks to move the damn money. You'd be making so much money, mm-hmm. and it would be fed back into research and more institutions. No one has anything to gain. And in the grand scheme, when they say like, well, you know. Look at what the, uh, what was that freaking owl, the spotted owl or something like that, where it caused havoc for the, uh, for, for the loggers. For the, uh, lo- yeah, for yeah, the Yeah, I think it was the, right? the, wooded, the spotted wooded owl. spotted owl, or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was some kind of owl. And, but in the grand scheme of things, what something like this would do, this kind of discovery, there's no way, you know, there's no way that it's being kept secret. You know what it is? It's another excuse for why there's no evidence, you know, because it's as soon as you start bringing up anything that's in contrary to, and again, I got a million arguments for and against all of this stuff, and I'm into the subject, and I have, you know, disposition towards believing in the creatures are real, but it's like, so you got to show me evidence. I'm not going to be believe your crap stories about it running across the street in front of your car. I don't believe you're feeding them blueberry pancakes. You know, got to get evidence, and the only way to get that evidence is going to be a body. And the reason people don't want—I think most of the people who don't want that to happen—is because once you find a body and it's a real creature, then science is going to take over. They're not going to be asking every Tom, Dick, and Harry who runs around in the woods to help them, because at this point, all those guys running around the woods—they haven't proved anything, so they're of no use to anybody. You know, so what's going to happen is as soon as science gets their hands on it, all of the citizen naturalists, they're going to, you know, they're going to be pushed to the back of the bus, you know, and science is going to take over. And what science does is they take one, they start dissecting it, they do blood work, they do genetic work, depending on how rare the creature is in terms of what they discover, then uh, there'll probably be protections put in place so that you can't hunt it and all that other stuff, which which is great. But, you know, when people start that argument, it's like, okay, show me one freaking body that someone has come up with. And I'm not talking about that story that that hillbilly talks about, strangling the baby. The story keeps changing. Mm-hmm. It's like, show me an actual body. And then I'll say, okay, baby, you should put some laws into effect. Because up to this point, nobody's killed one. 
People can say whatever they want. They killed two of them. They killed 42 of them. Not a single shred of evidence on any of those stories. Yeah. And some of these guys that make the claims, like, who is that? That one guy I keep alluding to. He was a um, trophy hunter, basically. Every picture you saw before that, he was with whatever type of environment he had blasted, posing with it like an idiot. And you can guarantee that if he captured something like this, blew something like this away, he'd be riding around with that thing on his friggin' back. You know? So I don't buy it. I don't buy any of those stories. It's like, like I said, I'm not going to be a dick to someone and say, I think you're full of crap. <clears throat> but, you know, I'll politely listen to the story. And I want to believe it, someone tells me. I talked to some really interesting people the year I was at um, the Ohio Bigfoot Conference who had some neat stories. And they were nice and they were believable. But to take that next step. I mean, one of the interesting things about what me and Jeff and the guys are doing with this stuff, I based all my designs off of reports either I've taken myself or things that I've uh, things that I've read it's kind of a mixture you know I, mm -hmm. I take a lot of different stuff mix it all up see what looks good and that's how I come up with what I do but <laughs> because again there's there's no proof of anything so I can do whatever I want basically yeah but you wouldn't believe well you probably would believe how many people send me messages or like post something or there's something I post on Facebook I'm like yeah that's not what they look like <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like oh and I'll be just like oh yeah and I'll lead them on and be like oh but, wow so uh, you've actually seen it I'm like yeah well it looks like this well, it's like well you know I'd love to see your pictures and like, well you know uh, no photographs like, yeah that's what I thought <laughs> well Gene listen I I really appreciate you uh coming on and talking with us about Sasquatch and, and your views and opinions on it. Now, before we wrap up today, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about the creature replica stuff um, that you brought up. Um, because definitely, and, and we'll, we'll get with you again and talk more, because there's a lot more about, about Bigfoot that we want to cover. But um, with creature replica, what is there anything that you want to talk with us today about what's coming out or about what you're working on or what you're excited to start to work on? Yeah, the uh, the next series is going to be a little more broad as far as um, a little more broad in scope as far as creatures. Like you see with the first line, we kind of focused on werewolves and uh, and ape men, you know, extant apes, fellow comments, however you want to view. So the next series we're going to, the definites are, the Wendigo is one of the first ones in the series, which I've wanted to do for a while, because I like to, I wanted to follow the thread of uh, Native American folklore, and uh, that's one I've wanted to do for a while. So he's kind of one of the benchmarks in the line. We're going to do some more variations on the Sasquatch also, and... Uh, there's also going to be uh, Mothman in the line. In addition awesome. to, you know, we're doing, obviously we're doing the statue with Seth. So the Mothman in the line is going to be an action figure though. It's going to be not a pre-posed thing. It'll be, and there'll be multiple designs of it. <clears throat> there'll be one that's mostly like what I did in that sketch for Seth Kickstarter, mm -hmm. which is pretty much my, my vision of what that original, those original couple of drawings of the stuff, Mothman and the witness reports were. And then there'll be a few other 
things that are the lines kind of broken into different versions of Sasquatch. There's different versions of hooved animals like the Wendigo. <clears throat> There's um, and these are this is like waves two and three and maybe three and a half. There's a lot of stuff. I'm not sure exactly which ones are going to go where, but there's also, I'm also working on a Jersey Devil. Awesome. And uh, Chupacabra. And oh, Chris is getting South excited. <laughs> yeah, and a creature from South America called the Orang Bati that's basically like Man Bat from the Batman comics. Mm-hmm. So, and also there's some oddball licenses we've been looking at too that may or may not happen that we can't talk about yet but okay. um, a ton of stuff there's basically I have about 10 figures in the works and we're also starting a line of uh, statues and, and it's something we would, we're talking about a while anyway <clears throat> and when the Mothman thing came up we were talking to Seth about it and it seemed like a great idea to partner up on that and at the same time it would give us a benchmark to kind of use to see how a launch of statues would do. So there'll be more of those as well. And the statues will allow us to do stuff that's a little more obscure that we, you know, with the figures we got to do like a few thousand feet. The statues, we could keep the runs low. if We want to do something really obscure that we're not sure will sell very well, but just to get it out there. So that's very exciting. So over the next few months, that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and also we're going to be expanding into the alien realm, so there'll be some alien greys in the next series too. Cool, very cool. Now on the uh, on the chupacabra, please please tell me that you're you're not looking at mangy coyote chupacabra. Uh, <clears throat> no, no. I mean, um, <laughs> I like the idea of doing both of them in a two pack, actually, which would be kind of cool. Yeah, I thought but, think uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Chupacabra is really cool in its, you know, its earliest incarnation. Right. Of course, you know, there's a lot of these creatures. As much as I'm into cryptozoology and I can, I can buy into aspects of the Bigfoot thing, there's a lot of these things that I just don't think. Like Chupacabra, that, that started around like the early 90s, I think. That does not, you know, present itself as a real creature in any way, shape, or form. You know, that, that's purely nonsense, I think. But cool-looking animal, though. Very cool. And the, yeah. the, one, the one thing I can say about the next series of figures, the next few series of figures are going to be really disturbing. Because everything, everything that I'm doing with this new stuff is, um, it really, my take on it is very disturbing. So I think that you have that to look forward to. Awesome. Well, all right, Gene. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. I know you're very busy, but we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. And uh, me and Chris will be looking forward to seeing you at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And if there's anything uh, comes up you'd like to talk about, uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, cryptids, creature replica, or otherwise, uh, just get in touch with us. We'll be happy to chat with you. Great, guys. I... I appreciate you letting me to rant about this crazy Bigfoot stuff for a while. No, and, uh, we enjoyed it. Perhaps, per, perhaps at the OBC, you could keep me from getting my ass beat for people that have heard the show. <laughs> well, there you go. That's right. <laughs> Just stand in between us. We make a good barrier. <laughs> right on.
All right. Thank you so much, Gene. So, yeah, thanks again, Gene, for coming on the show and talking all things Bigfoot and Sasquatch related for us. Mm-hmm. He's very talented, very insightful. Very. You know what else is insightful, Chad? What's that, Chris? <laughs> Paranormalguys.com. Wow, really? <laughs> it is. Huh. Because you can go there and you can listen to the show. Mm-hmm. You can sign up for emails. Sure. You can see stuff. Positive? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can see pictures uh, that we put up there occasionally. We'll put more up soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trying to get that going a little bit better. Yep. True. True, true. And what else is on there, Chad? Uh, there's uh, links to really cool stuff like Creature Replica. There is. There's also a link for Small Town Monsters, so you can check out Seth's movies like uh, uh, Beast of Whitehall and... Uh, Way to not uh, remember uh, those, just, Chad. Okay, fine. We'll just Boggy Creek Monster. Yeah, Boggy Creek, and uh, you have Minerva Monster... But um, and you can uh, pre-order that uh, Mothman. You can pre-order DVD Mothman. Now. You can do that right now. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. So head on over there and do that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting old. I have to think about stuff. And while you're, you know, perusing the interwebs for all this wonderful stuff, mm-hmm. head on over to Facebook and see our page there. It's yeah. uh, Facebook.com/slash Guys. You sure? It is. Oh, okay. Chad puts all kinds of interesting things on that page. The hell you say. <laughs> Really? Uh, <laughs> Head on over to our Facebook page. Check it out, y'all. And while you're looking at our Facebook page, head on over to William Blanchard's Facebook page. He's the gentleman that supplies our music for Paro Normal Guys. He's a musical genius. That he is. Mm-hmm. And he is at facebook.com slash William Blanchard Soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So there you go, Chad. Yeah, Chris. Another one in the books. There it is. What show number is this now? Uh, this will be 20-something, 6, 27. 7? I don't know. You sure? So many now, I've lost count. I know. It's hard to keep up, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Been a year, and time is just slipping on by, and so you know, we'll be 100 shows. Time does keep on slipping, Into slipping, the slipping. Into the we might be part of some major... YouTube network in the future, or who knows? We could be big in Britain. But anyway, Uh we digress and ramble. Yes, sir. So, have a paro normal weeks. Funny rabbit.